0: Let's pray together our god we ask you now for help send your holy spirit without limit upon me so that i might preach faithfully and well communicating rightly your word not exceeding its bounds not saying more than it says not saying less than it says but saying what it says and be also with your people that the spirit might preach to their hearts a better word than my lips can say that the Spirit might take the word of God and the truth of God and convince our eyes. I pray that you would lower our defenses and leave our hearts open and bare to you, that you might grip us, strengthen us, and also bring us to yourself. You, Lord, know where each person is and are able to meet them precisely where they are, for you are the Lord of their hearts, and allow their hearts now to love you. Be with us during this time. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a talk this week that referenced the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi. It's a book called The Story of My Experiments with Truth. I happen to have a copy and so I grabbed it off the shelf and I want to read you one passage from his book. He writes of his life and various accounts. This account is his reflection on a Christian friend that had brought him to a Christian meeting. And he writes of that sort of event and his reflections thereof. I want you to hear it. It's a somewhat of a lengthy quote, but I think it'll be worth your attention. He writes, Mr. Baker, that's his Christian friend, was getting anxious about my future. He took me to the Wellington Convention. The Protestant Christians organized such gatherings every few years for religious enlightenment, or in other words, self-purification. One may call this religious restoration or revival. The Wellington Convention was of this type. The chairman was the famous divine of the place, the Reverend Andrew Murray. Mr. Baker had hoped that the atmosphere of religious exaltation at the convention and the enthusiasm and earnestness of the people attending it would inevitably lead me to embrace Christianity. But his final hope was of the efficacy of prayer. He had an abiding faith in prayer. It was his firm conviction that God could not but listen to prayer fervently offered. He would cite the instances of men like George Mueller of Bristol who depended entirely on prayer even for his temporal needs. I listened to his discourse on the efficacy of prayer with unbiased attention and assured him that nothing could prevent me from embracing Christianity should I feel the call. I had no hesitation in giving this assurance to him as I had long since taught myself to follow the inner voice. I delighted in submitting to it. To act against it would be difficult and painful to me. The convention was an assemblage of devout Christians. I was delighted at their faith. I met the Reverend Murray. I saw that many were praying for me. I liked some of their hymns. They were very sweet. The convention lasted for three days. I could understand and appreciate the devoutness of those who attended it but I saw no reason for changing my belief, my religion. It was impossible for me to believe that I could go to heaven or attain salvation only by becoming a Christian. When I frankly said so to some of the good Christian friends, they were shocked, but there was no help for it. My difficulties lay deeper. It was more than I could believe that Jesus was the only incarnate Son of God, and that only he who believed in him would have everlasting life. If God could have sons, all of us were his sons. If Jesus was like God, or God himself, then all men were like God, and could be God himself. Now undoubtedly, the life and work and vision of Martin Luther King has impacted the world tremendously. The world all over has benefited from the unique life and vision of Martin Luther King. For example, his vision of nonviolence benefited not only his country of India, but even our nation of America. Dr. Martin Luther King did much of what he did because he was profoundly influenced by Mahatma Gandhi and his vision of nonviolence. I would further say that there are many perhaps of us and certainly in our world and our culture, who would likewise say our world also would be helped if we adopted Gandhi's vision of religion as well. You see, I want you to remember, Gandhi was born a Hindu, and yet it did not stop him from being able to understand and appreciate much of Christianity. In fact, if you read Gandhi's writings, you'll find that he has this deep affection and deep respect for Christianity. In fact, he loves the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives, loves its ethical vision, loves its moral requirements, loves its teaching to turn the other cheek and love thy neighbor, love thy enemy even. But where Gandhi had the hardest difficulty with Christianity was with the Christian claim that Jesus was a part and above every other worldview, every other religion, every other faith system, that to Gandhi was something his heart could not accept. Right? If if Gandhi could appreciate so much about the Christian worldview, the word that he tripped over, the word that was a stumbling block to him, was only Jesus. Here again, from his words, he wrote: "It was more than I could believe that Jesus was the only." incarnate son of God, and that only he who believed in him would have everlasting life. I'd imagine that perhaps you might be sympathetic to the same thing. Certainly, our neighbors, our city, our friends throughout this place would be sympathetic to the same thing, which is there is much about Christianity that is admirable, even acceptable, even admirable, but the idea that Christians claim that Jesus Christ is apart and above every other world view every other thought that's something that is difficult perhaps difficult is not even the right word it's offensive perhaps the word is proud arrogant pompous perhaps the word is just plain wrong it is wrong we would say for someone to insist that there can only be one true religion Even as I say that, you can hear how proud or arrogant or pompous or offensive or intolerant that might sound, right? Perhaps if you're honest, you might say, rather than words like exclusive, we ought to use words like inclusive. Rather than words like one, we should use words like all or only should be replaced by every. Right? Our climate, our culture, many of us would say that all religions are valid. Every faith system is true. All of them are the same. Perhaps you've said, or maybe you've heard it said, that all religions are like different paths on the same mountain. And, and everyone gets there differently, but everyone's going to the same mountaintop. Or they're like different branches emanating and growing from the same tree. You might say that you might call him God, you might call him Allah, you might call him Brahma, but at the end of the day, Yahweh, whatever you call him, we're all speaking about the same God. And perhaps, if we could just embrace that reality, we would all be so much happier. Right? You just have to read editorials in newspapers to know that many say that religious superiority... This idea that I have truth that you don't have, exclusivity, these are the kinds of things that breed arrogance and hatred and and crimes of the worst sort. And so, if we could all understand that all of them are the same, all of them equally valid, all of them sort of leading to the same place, we would all be happy. The world would know peace. And it's almost like just when we're ready to grab hands with one another and sing Kumbaya together, Christianity comes along and spoils the fun. And Christianity won't play along. And Christianity won't cooperate. And in our passage today, as we're continuing through 1 John, our series called Authentic Christianity, John, in 1 John 2, verses 18 to 27, is going to tell us the one thing about Christianity that makes it unwilling to play along. The one thing about the Christian faith, the Christian worldview, the Christian claim, that in John's mind is apart from and above everything else, is distinct from every other claim, is distinct from every other worldview, is distinct from every other religion. John is going to insist in these verses that there's one thing that cannot be fit in to the to the idea that everything's okay. There's one thing about Christianity that sets it apart and above everything else. Now, you are completely free to disagree with John. You might find that incredibly close-minded and narrow. I would at least say to you, but if you will not give him a fair hearing, you know what that makes you? Close-minded and narrow. So don't be that. Be open-minded, give him a fair hearing, and decide whatever you will. 1 John 2, verses 18 to 27. It's the passage Joe read for us. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. 1 John 2, verses 18 to 27. That's the passage we'll look at together. What I want to do, if you can turn there, what I want to do is I want to take you specifically and especially to verse 23. But before we get there, I want to sort of walk you through the verses before so that you understand where we are in the passage. I want you to remember that we've said for the last few weeks as we've been looking at 1 John, That the Apostle John, one of Jesus' own disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends, you might even say Jesus' best friend on the earth, writes this letter to a church and to a group of churches. And if you remember the occasion that caused this letter, it's that there was a bunch of folks in church and then many of them left. Many of them walked away from Jesus. Many of them walked away from the church. They abandoned the Christian faith. They started to believe these false teachings about Jesus and they left. And in their leaving, there was sort of this spiritual earthquake that happened for everyone else who stayed. As they saw their friends walk away from Jesus and the church, they began to wonder, are they Christians or are we Christians? Is that authentic Christianity or do we have authentic Christianity? Are we genuine believers or are they genuine believers? And if you'll remember, John, the apostle, now a 80 or 90-year-old pastor, writes this letter to those who stayed. And he's writing in order to convince them again afresh and anew what authentic Christianity is and to reassure them that they are, in fact, authentic Christians. If you were here with us, you know that John gives sort of three tests cycled throughout the book over and over again. Are you living morally? Is your life showing that your confession is true? So he gives a moral test. Then he gives a social or relational test. Is how you relate to one another with love showing that your confession is true? So he gives that test. And then he'll give a doctrinal test as well. Is what you're believing about your confession true? And it's that one that we're going to particularly see today. John says, look at verse 18. This is how it starts. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. All right, pause there for a second. John starts this section with children, right? And if you've been with us through 1 John, if you've read through 1 John on your own, you've heard that term over and over again. And I keep bringing it to your attention so that you can see this dear old pastor loves this church. He can hardly get through a passage in this book without either calling them beloved or children, or my little children. He loves them. And when he's going to say hard things to them, like he will even in this passage, he says it like a dad to his children, right? Fathers say words to their children that are necessary and sometimes hard that are said in love. So likewise, John says, children, it is the last hour. When he says this last hour, it's this phrase used in the scriptures to say that the end is coming. If you remember back to last week when we were in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, John had just finished saying to the church, don't love the world in such a way that it has your heart more than God. And one of the reasons he gave that you shouldn't do that is because the world and its desires, verse 18, is passing away. There's nothing on this earth that you can put your heart on that's going to last forever. Your beauty is going to decline. Your health is going to fade. Riches are going to fly away. There's nothing here that you can lock onto and hold onto for all eternity because the world and its desires are passing away. It's going to end. And as he thinks about the end, he says this, children, it is the last hour. Right? That, that's the connection. And he begins to say it's the last hour. This phrase that's used in the scripture to say that we are now in the final era of human history right, that, that we're in the last days, that this world's not going to last forever, it's going in a certain direction, it's going to come to an end, and that this world, these last days have begun. What he's trying to say is that, look, when Jesus came to the earth, he ushered in this new and final era, right, whether you're a Christian or not, you, you understand perfectly well how Jesus is sort of this dividing line in time. Even if you're not a Christian, you know that we categorize time as B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after the coming of the Lord. So John's saying, just like the world's time is split up because of the coming of Christ, so also I want you to know in the biggest picture of how God is unrolling the history of the world, now we're in the last days, that when Jesus Christ came to the earth, was born, when he lived his life and died his death and rose again and ascended into heaven, that began a new And final era. There's nothing left that we're really waiting for. It's not like we're waiting for some more revelation. Some more scripture. Some more great thing for God to do. What God wanted to do has been done in Jesus Christ. Now, just like he came, the only thing we're waiting for is for him to come again. That's the final hour. He has come. He will return. Before he returns, there was this teaching that there would be this one final great opponent to christ who would be opposed to christ who would be anti-christ and you'll see that term in this text children it's the last hour as you have heard that antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have come i don't know about you i can't hear the word antichrist without immediately thinking of some weird horror movie or some some spooky end time thing so so here's what john's saying The scriptures use this term, antichrist, four times. All four times are actually used by our boy John. Two of them are used in our passage right here. And what John is saying is, even if there is one final chief opponent of Christ to come, one who is antichrist, so already many are here who are opposed to Christ. Many of that same spirit have already come who are opposed to Christ, who are antichrist. Now, who are they? He's going to tell us. Look at verse 19 and following. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So who's John talking about when he talks about these many Antichrists who have come? John's talking about the folks that left. He starts to say, look, they went out from us. There were people here. They looked like us. They sang with us. They prayed with us. They looked like they were authentic Christians just like everyone else, but they went out. And John is saying they went out and they started to believe lies about Jesus and spread those lies about Jesus. And now they became opposed to Jesus. They became anti-Jesus and they went out. And John says, and moreover, by their exodus, by their leaving, it's become plain that though they were here, they were never really here. Though they were of us, they were never of us. And we know that because of the fact that they left. You see, what John's doing is, he's doing what theologians will later call describing the visible church and the invisible church. What that just means is, what John is saying is, look, you could have people here that you can see, but not everyone I see is really a part of Jesus' church. There's a visible church that everyone can see. Look around you. But there's an invisible church of those who are truly here because not all who are here are really here, John says. Not all of us who are among us are really among us, John says. Now, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, you're just trying to figure out what it is you believe and belong to, that's perfectly fine. But John would say, for those of you that call yourselves Christians, John's saying the truth is there are some who are here that are not really here, some who are among us that are not really among us. And it will be shown out. It will be evidenced. You can't hide it forever. If you're an authentic or if you're a counterfeit, that's going to eventually come out. You can't hide forever. If you're authentic, it's going to be evidenced by the fact that you last till the last day, that you stick with Jesus and his church till the last day. Your perseverance till the end is the evidence that you do, in fact, believe, that you are, in fact, authentic. If you are there on the last day with Jesus and his church, it's the evidence that you have been authentic all along. On the other hand, if you're a counterfeit, that too will be exposed. You cannot hide forever. It will be exposed either on the last day, when Jesus has already said, in the last day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, in your name we perform great things. We did this for you, and we did that for you, and we said this for you. And Jesus will turn to you and say, I never knew you. It will either be exposed in the last day, or John is saying here, as happened in his church, Some of you won't even be able to fake it till the end. You'll walk away before that. You won't be able to keep on the show forever. In fact, you'll desert Jesus and his church before that. Your true colors will eventually show, and you'll walk away from Christ and his people long before, proving that you have been a counterfeit all along. And it's to them that John applies this term, antichrist. I want you to notice for a second how he uses it. Because what he does is he sort of demystifies it. He takes it out of the realm of the end-time spooky boogeyman. And he applies it in a much more general way that we can understand and relate to. He says, look, who are the Antichrist?" Verse 22, it's those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. It's those who don't get Jesus right. That's not just an end-time thing. John's saying, that has already come. That's already happened all over the place. You know, of folks who deny that Jesus is the Christ, who don't get Jesus right, who don't believe the truth about Jesus. Now, what it is that they were teaching, what it is that they exactly believe, we don't know. But we can piece together that the place where these deserters messed up was Jesus Christ. They weren't living right, that's shown in the moral test. They weren't loving right, that's shown in the social test. But the principal place... The primary thing that they got wrong, that John could not believe, is they got Jesus wrong. They didn't get Jesus right. Some of them denied Jesus' humanity, as some religions even today do. And so they believed that Jesus was God, they just didn't fully buy that he was fully man. And so what they figured was Jesus was sort of like Superman, right? Right? If you know Superman and Clark Kent, he looks like us, but everybody knows he's not really one of us. The bullets don't hurt. He doesn't really feel what we feel. He doesn't really bleed. Underneath it all is his red underwear and blue tights. And they would say that's sort of Jesus as well. He looked like us. But he wasn't really fazed by what we were fazed by. He's not hurt by what we're hurt by. When he was on the cross, that wasn't really painful because he's got sort of tights underneath with a big S that says Son of God. And that's who he really was. Others denied not his divinity, but denied his humanity. And some could say, and this is far more prevalent even in our own day. You see, these things about Jesus, they're not new and fresh. They're just borrowed and repackaged. So in our day, we believe the same thing. We're all for Jesus the man. We just don't buy that he's the only God. You won't have any trouble convincing anybody on the streets of Philadelphia in northeast that Jesus was a good man or a moral man or a good teacher or a great leader. Where you'll get into a fight is to say he was more than that. He was also fully God. And there's this thing about Jesus being both fully God and fully man that they couldn't get. They couldn't buy Jesus. They couldn't get Jesus right. And for John, hear me, for John, the central issue, the dividing line, the thing that sets Christianity above and apart, everything else, is Jesus. For John, his primary question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? And in John's mind, you've only got one of two possibilities with Jesus. Right? If you've read through 1 John on your own, you're going to notice that everything is very stark for John. It's black and white. If, If you've read through 1 John, you notice he'll say, you're either in darkness or you're in light. There's no sort of cloudy middle. It's you're in darkness or you're in light. You hate your brother or you love your brother. You're an authentic Christian or you're a counterfeit. Everything is... You have life or you're dead. Very stark. When it comes to Jesus, it's the same way. He says, you're either going to deny him or confess him. You're either going to receive him or reject him. Those are the only two options. And then he drops a bomb on us. Look at verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Hear that again. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. If there's ever a sentence that cuts against the climate of our day or the vision of religion like Gandhi and many of us have, it's this one. Because just like in our day, in John's day, there were folks who felt like they could have God and not have Jesus. And it's to them and to us that John wants to say as crystal clear as he can. No one who denies the Son has the Father. If that's not clear enough, let me translate it even clearer for you. He is saying, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have God. If you don't get Jesus, you don't get God. He's saying, if you want to have God... You have to have Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have God. Now, if what John has said so far hasn't ticked you off already in calling people liars and antichrists, now you're ready to boo John off stage, right? There are lots of things about Christianity that is hard to stomach. It's moral teaching, it's ethical vision, it's views on marriage and life, and all kinds of stuff that's hard. But I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say the single thing that might be the most difficult and most offensive and most hard to accept about Christianity is its claim that Jesus is apart and above everything else and that no one gets God without Jesus Christ. No one has God without the Son. Now, as you hear that, I want to imagine I could get sort of into your mind and into your hearts or into the hearts of friends we know and love. You, you can almost imagine what your response would be. As I say this, there's, I'd imagine many of you thinking, don't you hear yourself as you say that, how pompous and arrogant and proud and offensive and intolerant that sounds. Don't you hear it yourself? You might say to me, you know what, if you could only understand that it's not that way, maybe you'd use a popular illustration that's often used. I, I don't know if you've heard this, but tell me, or you can hear it with me, right? Uh, in in Keller, Tim Keller, a pastor from New York's book called Reason for God, he cites the story of this missionary named Leslie Newbegin. Uh, Newbegin was, I think, a missionary to India, and he's got this story that people would always tell him. It's the story of three blind men and the elephant. And and they use this story to try and describe what religion is really like, that in reality, all the religions are the same, and all the religions know some, but no religion knows all. And so the story goes that there's three blind men that come up to an elephant, and each grab a different part. And so one blind man grabs the, the trunk, and he says, you know what elephants are? They are flexible and long like a snake. Another comes and grabs the the leg and says, no, no, they are sturdy and strong like the base of a tree. Another comes and touches the side and says, no, 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 elephants are, are wide and flat and smooth. And the story goes, you see that? All of them got part. None of them got the whole. That's how religion works. All religions have some part of reality, but no one sees it all. All the religions are the same. Nubigan heard this over and over and over again, and he never had a response. He says, until one day it dawned on him. You see, the only way the story works is if there's one person who has sight who gets to see what everyone else is doing. The only way the story works is if there's someone who sees everyone else groping in blindness, but they see all reality. The only way you can see all religions are the same and get some part of reality is if you claim to see what no one else can see. You have sight of all things. You have a vantage point that no one else has. You claim to have the very sight you're saying nobody can have because unlike all these religious folks that are groping in blindness, you see everything perfectly right. And you know ultimate reality and know it enough to the point that you can call them all blind. And Newbigin realized, you know what it is? It's humility that's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy disguised as humility. Because the very sight you say no one has, you have. The very vantage point no one has, you have. The very knowledge of reality you say no one can have, you have. Because you know ultimate reality, and you know the rest of us are grasping at pieces of it. Don't you see, he says, the inherent fallacy and contradiction and hypocrisy of the whole thing. It's, it's sort of like when people say, look, there's no truth that everyone should believe. There's just what's true for me and what's true for you, what works for me, what works for you. There's nothing everyone should believe. And you can't help but ask, should everyone believe that? There's nothing everyone should believe. Should everyone believe that? Everything's relative. Is that relative? There's nothing true. Is that true? There's this inherent fallacy to the whole thing, this self-defeating nature to the whole thing. It's hypocrisy disguised as humility. It's an exclusive belief system disguised as inclusive and accepting of all. It's intolerance disguised as tolerance. Now maybe you back up and you go, okay, okay, we're not saying all religions are exactly the same. Everyone knows that there are differences, right? Everyone knows that the five pillars of Islam is different than the seven sacraments of Catholicism, which is different than the eightfold path of Buddhism. Everyone knows that, you know, if you look at it closely how they describe how we began and what our problem is and what the solution is and where we're all going is all different. But but what you'd be saying is But those differences don't matter. At the end of the day, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Is that right? Go tell that to a Muslim in Saudi Arabia, because it matters to him. And then don't you see that what you're doing is you are importing your understanding of reality on someone else. Deep down, you believe that how you see the world is far superior far more accepting than everyone else. And deep down, you even believe everyone else should believe that way too. You know what you are? You're a missionary. You're trying to convert people to your opinion, which by your own definition is arrogant and proud and offensive. Don't you see? You see, I want to suggest to you, true tolerance is not saying 2 plus 2 equals 4 and 2 plus 2 equals 5. True tolerance is saying, you can believe two plus two equals five. I think you're wrong, and I'm going to go on thinking I'm wrong, that you're wrong. Right? All of us have belief systems. It's just some of us are more honest about them than others. And for John, for the Apostle John, the dividing line, the issue that is paramount above everything else is what are you going to do with Jesus? Because we can't all be right about him. We can't all be right about him. So what are you going to do, John says, with Jesus? Because I, I want you to hear, the thing that sets Christianity apart and above from everything else for John is Jesus. If the point of the world was morality, I'm telling you, I would not say Christianity is the only way. It's not like if you go to Judaism, you're going to find they espouse you should steal. Or if you go to Islam, they espouse you should hurt the poor. If the point is just being a good person, I agree that you'll find morality and ethics everywhere. But for John, the question is, what do you do with Jesus? What do you say about him and his claims? What do you make of him? For John, it's all about Jesus. And we can't all be right about him. We can't all be right about him. In Islam, the prophet Isa, Jesus, is a prophet, second only to Muhammad. And he is great. I think they even say he's sinless. But he certainly didn't die on the cross. And he certainly wasn't God. And even the thought that God would take on flesh and be born out of the womb of a woman is highly offensive. In Hinduism, Jesus is possibly an incarnation of God but certainly not the only one, one of many incarnations of God. In Buddhism, he is an enlightened teacher or maybe even an enlightened guru. In Judaism, he's much worse, he's a false messiah that has caused much havoc on people and religion. In secularism or atheism or humanism, he is at best a good man a good teacher, a good leader, or maybe at worst a legend and a lie and a fabrication like the tooth fairy. So we can't all be right about Jesus. And John says, what do you do with him? Because authentic Christianity hinges on him. And if you were to ask John, John, then you tell us, who is Jesus? I don't think John would be able to contain his smile. I think John would say to you, in the beginning there was God and the triune God existed forever as Father and Son and Holy Spirit and Jesus has always and is and forever will be God. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit created the world in their own love and for the sake of their own glory and it was through Jesus that God created the world. And then Jesus and the Father and the Spirit made human beings in their own image and likeness that we might be like God and reflect God and glorify God. But we didn't. As you can see from your own heart, if you're honest at least about your own heart, you know it's broken. You know it's messed up. You know the story of your life has so many devastating places. And humanity sinned against God and rebelled against God. And rather than glorifying God, sought to glorify themselves and rebelled and walked away from God. And rather than rejecting this fallen Disgraced humanity. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to become like us. Fully man and fully God. And Jesus Christ was born in the flesh. And he lived the life that we were supposed to live. Perfectly, moral in every way, sinless and pure. He made claims no other world religious leader made. Like, I am God. I can forgive your sins. Worship me. He made these outlandish claims. Other religions will say, let me show you the way to truth. He says, I am the truth. Other religions will say, let me show you the way to God. He says, I am the way. Other religions will say, here's how you get life. He says, I am life. He is this, he's either this incredibly egotistical man, because he's constantly pointing himself. You want to know the door to heaven? I am the door. You want to know the gate to get to God? I am the gate. You know how you get resurrection? I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live again. He constantly pointed to himself. And then this God-man in the flesh, because of his perfect life, received not a reward, but punishment. He was put on a cross, though he had no sin of his own, so that whoever would believe in him the guilt of their sin and the punishment they deserved was put upon him. And the reward for his perfect righteous life was given to them. That's what Christians call the gospel or the good news. Where every other world system says you got to try and get to God and reach for God, Jesus says God reached down for you and came to you and got you because you couldn't get to him. This one man named C.S. Lewis says... The idea that we're searching for God is like a mouse searching for a cat. In reality, God searched for you when you had no thought to search for him. And this God-man who takes upon our sin and gives to us his righteousness solely by faith, not by good deeds, not by works, not by morality, is died and dead and buried and on the third day he rises again because he proves that death and sin and hell and Satan have been defeated through his glorious and victorious resurrection, he rises again, ascends to heaven, and he will return to take all those who have trusted in him, that they may be forever where he is. John says, that's Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with that? You're either going to receive that or reject it you're going to either deny that or confess it. And that makes all the difference in the world. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, my simple plea would be consider Jesus Christ and at least answer the question, who do you say that he is? And then, not just as a a distant person, but as a Christian minister of the gospel, I want to additionally say, I plead with you, come to him. You need forgiveness, he said, I can forgive you. You need grace, you need the sins of your life washed away, every single one of them, no matter what you've done, gone, Jesus promises it can be so. I promise you, you will spend either the rest of your life trying to work off this debt you know you have inside, or you will receive, even now, the free gift offered by God through Christ for you. You can come to him. Otherwise, you will spend your every day hoping to make sure your good outweighs your bad, or you can receive good from him and give your bad to him. If you don't know Christ, I would plead with you, come to him. If you do know Christian, if you do know Christ, to you Christians, last word. In verses 24 and following, I'm not going to read a few now. John's basic message is this: If you know him, stick with him. Abide with him till the end. The Spirit has already shown you this is true. The Word of God points you to what's truth. Stay in the Spirit and stay in the Word. Abide in Him. That which you've heard from the beginning, abide in it so that He will abide in you. Stick with it. Believe the gospel more deeply and more truly. I want to say one thing. If you do, if you believe this gospel more deeply and truly, it may have a profound effect on the rest of the world who watches. You know why? The great fear with holding on to an exclusive belief the world over is that it will turn you into a proud, arrogant, judgmental, superior, better-than-thou person. That's what everyone hates about the idea of an exclusive claim. And if religion is about what we do to get to God and how we keep these things right and how we have the right truth and have done the right things, that is how your heart's going to go. You're going to be incredibly proud. You're going to be incredibly superior to everyone else because you have the truth they don't. But if you believe the gospel more deeply, if you come more closer to the heart of the Christian message, why were you saved? Because you were better than anyone else? Because you confessed you were the worst of all? Why were you saved? Because you morally outperformed your neighbor? Because you were morally bankrupt. And you have no problem admitting that even your non-Christian friend may be morally better than you. Because you weren't saved because of your morality. We're used, you have a place to be superior or boast. What boast do we have? We say, I was saved through nothing of my own. I came with empty hands and received the fullness of all he had for me. If you come closer and closer to the heart of Christianity, rather than it making you proud, it turns you humble. Because you were the least and you were the worst. And it was through no betterness of your own that God extended grace to you. And remember, the central heart of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ, who, though he was superior, made himself inferior to all, who was condemned rather than doing condemning, who received judgment rather than being judgmental. He's the heart of our faith. And the closer we come to him, the more appealing he will be to the rest of the world. You see, that's why our boast today What we've made much of today is Jesus. I didn't say Christians are better. I said Christ is above and apart every other worldview. If you want to talk about him, we boast all day. If you want to talk about us, we have nothing to boast about. And the closer you come to the heart of the Christian faith, your exclusive belief in Jesus Christ might become more and more attractive to a world who desperately needs him. Let's pray together. Through no work of my own and our own, through no merit, through no wisdom that we had, through no performance that we outperformed our neighbors, through nothing but grace alone, through nothing but the Spirit himself opening our eyes to see what we were otherwise blind to see, opening our ears to to hear what we were otherwise deaf to hear, softening our hearts to believe what otherwise we were hardened towards unbelief. Through nothing of our own but by your own grace, we do gladly now confess in Christ alone. We do say, he is the Lord, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. We do confess him rather than deny him this morning. And we do give our worship and our praise and our glory and our thanksgiving and our very lives to him who gave his life for us. We do come closer and closer this morning now to you, Lord Jesus. And it's with gladness in our hearts that we confess you are God and you alone. And you have made the way for us to come to the Father. And so we give you thanks. Now be with us over the things we have talked about and let your spirit be at work in our hearts. We give you thanks for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.